Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is Diego Farias, the co-founder and CEO of Amuse. But first of all, there has been a report coming from the RIAA that 25% of CDs purchased on Amazon are counterfeit. Yes, a full 25%. And if you think that blows your mind, they found out that 16% coming from eBay is also counterfeit. Okay, kind of expected that, but this is the one that will really get you. 100% of the box sets that they purchased from Amazon were counterfeit. And that's where the real money is at in the box sets. So you might think that this is a problem with Amazon, but it really isn't. This is something that's a problem with Amazon's FBA, which means fulfilled by Amazon. And these are third-party sellers on Amazon that use Amazon for shipping. So Amazon doesn't really know what the product is. That being said, it goes yet another step here because the RIAA is talking about counterfeit CDs. They never once say they're infringing, copyright infringing CDs. Copyright infringing would mean they were illegal copies. Now, what everybody thinks is happening is these are actually gray market CDs. In other words, they're real official CDs that come from outside of the country. So they're not made in the United States. For an end user, they could care less where they come from, to be honest. So this is the RIAA doing what the RIAA does, which is they stir up a lot of controversy about these things. And this has been going on since the days before piracy and then during piracy. And now we're coming back to counterfeit CDs. How many CDs are sold anyway? Well, it's still a pretty big business. $1.5 billion last year. So it's still pretty big. And Amazon is one of the biggest sellers of CDs left. So we don't want those CDs to be illegal, but just because the gray market, it doesn't mean they're illegal. It just means they're from outside the country. So take this with a grain of salt because it seems like a very dramatic headline, but it's not exactly what it seems. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now let's talk about mixing with your eyes. This is something that I think most old school mixers have a problem with because most younger mixers who started out in the digital age tend to do this. They mix more with their eyes than with their ears. Now, all that said, way back in the day of big hardware consoles, of tape, we still mix with our eyes a lot anyway because... We watched the meters a lot, and sometimes we watched them too much. And you watched LED overload indicators as well. And sometimes we watched those too much without actually listening. Back then, one of the things that many mixers did to get around that was to actually 
taped cardboard or paper over the meter bridge so they couldn't see exactly what the meters are doing. Roy Thomas Baker is very famous for that. And all I know is when the song starts, all of a sudden you hear the ping of the meters banging against the stop. So it sounded good, so it was good. And that's kind of the case. Now, that being said, there's lots of different things that we can look at when it comes to our digital audio workstation, they're actually quite helpful as long as we don't get hung up on them. The biggest one is the waveform. And of course, you can look at the waveform and see how large it is. We can see if it's clipping. Sometimes we can see something that's happening and we can't really hear, but we know maybe we should turn it down. Level meters, same thing. We have level meters all over the place, all sorts of different types that we can access. We can just about get any indication that we're looking for. Spectrum analyzers are big, and this is one of the things that people get hung up on, looking at the spectrum analyzer rather than actually listening to what's happening. But it can be a valuable tool. Same with vectorscopes. Now, a vectorscope is going to tell us whether something is in phase or out of phase, but we can get hung up on that, especially because just in normal source recording, things are going in and out of phase all the time. And if you don't know that that's actually normal, that might freak you out a little bit. Then we have things like pitch graphs. We want to do pitch correction. Well, yeah, I do it by ear personally, but many people will actually sit there and they'll make sure that it's somewhat quantized. And I never thought that it sounded good that way, but for some people it absolutely works. And then we have things that are more esoteric like spectrograms and histograms and everything there is to help you do your job better. And certainly, they will. The only problem is you can't get hung up on them, and you have to use your ears. So one of the best things to do, the best exercises to do, if you're just getting started and you haven't done this for a while, is not to look at any of it. Rely on your ears. See what that tells you. Then do the reference. You get into trouble if you look first and then do whatever operation you're going to do without actually listening. So listen first and then take a look and see if you're right or not. My guest today is Diego Farias, who's a digital music and tech expert with experience from some of the world's most successful tech companies. He now serves as CEO and co-founder of the record label and music distributor Amuse. Amuse has a unique business model in that it provides free distribution to all the music streaming services. The company then analyzes music consumption and listening habits in order to find promising songs and rising talent. It then ties the artist to licensing deals rather than traditional recording contracts. Amuse recently introduced a new product called Fast Forward that uses machine learning to predict and pay independent artists on future royalties. With Fast Forward, independent artists can collect up six months of their future royalties while also retaining the rights to their music. During the interview, we spoke about what transformed the Swedish music scene to digital, the record label of the future, using machine learning to determine future royalty payouts, and much more. I spoke with Diego live via phone from the Amuse office in Los Angeles. How did you get started in the music business? What brought you to this point to Amuse? I was, I was working in uh, technology in Sweden, in internet uh, companies, and um, started working there in 2004, roughly. And in 2000, late Somewhere around 2010, I was offered the opportunity to come and join Warner Music. And um, I think Warner Music had come to the realization that transformation was happening at an absolutely ridiculous pace in Sweden as far as the transformation from being uh, you know, a more traditional record industry to, 
being a fully um, 100% streaming music industry, as far as that went, at least. So um, they had realized that the shift had already happened or was, was happening at a very quick pace and, and realized they needed to get someone who perhaps didn't come from inside of the music industry, but someone with a tech background, and that was myself. So I joined uh, Warner Music to run the digital sales and digital marketing um, back then, and, and, and I have stayed in the music industry since. Uh, you mentioned that the change had come to digital music in Sweden first. Was that because of Spotify, or was Spotify an outgrowth of that? Because when you look at the Swedish trans- transformation in the Swedish music industry, it all happened very, very quick. Between um, services like Kazaa, which was a built service to the Naps uh, and the likes in those days, between that, the Pirate, which was also a Swedish service, uh, not necessarily one we're the most proud of, but um, you know they, they accelerated piracy and accelerated the conversation. And then Spotify came around somewhere in, in 2007. I remember some type of a closed beta back in those days. Um, so um, I'm talking about piracy and then the emergence of streaming as being this big transformation. Well, let's get to Amuse because it's a very unusual setup. Why don't you describe it? Yeah, so, um, basically, Amuse is, Amuse is the answer to, to our primary question, which was, what does the record company look like in the future? And uh, we started to build Muse based on that question and with the uh, aspiration of trying to solve that uh, or answer that question and, and, and build a really successful company around that answer. Um, so me and some of my co-founders, we came from the music and technology industry in Sweden. We had seen the emergence of Spotify. We participated in, in you know, all the work that led to Spotify becoming a global service um, and uh, have a lot of insights on how that has transformed the music industry. So we were observing the space, and um, I think there were a couple of fairly clear uh, observations that we could draw. Um, The big distribution services um, that have led the industry for for many years are not necessarily technology companies. They're service companies. They provide a very basic service, and their business models haven't necessarily transformed in the last 15 to 20 years. Um, That was one thing. The second thing was, uh, a big question mark about where uh, the record, where the major record companies are going, um, what their future role will be in the ecosystem. And I think that we felt like if we could combine a little bit of the learnings we had and a little bit of our insights from both of these areas, we would be able to create a super interesting company. So we started Amuse to be the world's first mobile record label. We figured that if we had a very big, very basic entry level, service with a very low barrier of entry we would be able to generate or or we would be able to um, um, provide a service worldwide to thousands and thousands of artists and using consumption data or the information that we collect from the different services about how the music is being consumed we would be able to use that information to um, predict future hits or emerging stars and uh, and that was the basic idea of, of amuse and it you know, we've stayed with that idea. We've continued to develop the service and added additional services on top of that. But that that remains our base service and base assumption of the business. So basically, you're a record label, but you discover new artists through the distribution part that you have. 
the distribution arm. And right, whoever's hot, that becomes a candidate for the label. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I don't think it's not really that different from how the record industry has always worked. You know, a traditional, you know, an A&R 30 years ago would hear from their friends that, you know, this talent is really blowing up. You should come see 50 people um, saw them play on Tuesday and then 150 people saw them play on Friday. And like there were all these kind of data points surrounding uh, the decision-making process when you were discovering talent. Um, I think what what we do is we, we take this incredible, incredibly rich and granular world of consumption data that we live in today, and we try to make sense of that. We don't only base our investment decisions or our uh, decisions to sign someone on data. That would be that would be crazy. Obviously, we interact with the artists. We understand what they want to do. We make sure that we feel comfortable that we can deliver on that for the artist. And then we start setting plans together with the artist, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a, it's a fantastic tool for us to start surfacing artists. So Amuse at this point, I mean, we, we launched the service in 2017, March of 2017, have hundreds of thousands of artists. And we, as a result of that, we have hundreds of thousands of songs. And all of those songs, uh, you know, when we look at that collection of songs, we, we can start to to uh, understand which of these tracks are, are generating, um, you know, a high level of interest or are accelerating or whatever other stories could come out of that data and helps us um, initiate the conversations with the artists that we then want to sign. Is there a particular genre that seems to be hot on Amuse? And the reason why I ask that is when you look at Spotify, for instance, it tends to lean hip-hop, and when you look at Amazon Music, it tends to lean country and i guess you, you can say the title is more r&b obviously because the owners is that something that you spot as well from where you sit at abuse yeah i, I think uh, you know one of your the observations you had made there was the um how should i call it the popularity of hip-hop worldwide i mean thanks to having a global service that's used in hundreds of countries around the world we can we can see that hip-hop has a has a great grassroots support all over the world whether that's dutch hip-hop or german hip-hop german hip-hop is actually colossal right now uh turkish hip-hop is emerging um you know this is something that's being played all over the world uh local variations of hip-hop so yes hip-hop has been incredibly successful for us too we've had our biggest commercial success in in hip-hop but thanks to all of this information that we're collecting we can also start seeing uh, the emergence of new genres or uh, an increased interest in other genres outside of hip hop. So thanks to the way we work, we've also, you know, we've looked heavily at categories like internet music, which is its, its own little genre, similar to like lo-fi or, or chill hop or whatever the different words would be for that genre. So we can kind of, we can zoom in on individual tracks, but we can also zoom out and see the movement inside of a, an individual genre or the emergence of a new one. And that's super exciting too. Um, but to conclude, hip hop is definitely one of those genres that is working all over the world. And I think there are tons of tools that facilitate it. Everything from different um, services where you can acquire beats or, or, or create beats or, or you know, all of these packs that you can use to create songs. There are tons of services that are perfectly aimed towards the hip-hop audience, and I think that facilitates the do-it-yourself process around the world. Now, I know that it doesn't cost anything for an artist to upload to Muse. 
as opposed to all of the distributors, virtually all of the distributors that I'm aware of anyway, when you sign an artist, it's a very generous 50% deal. Is that across the board or is that just digital we're talking about? It's it's only digital. We only sign digital master rights uh, in our license deal. Uh, so, so it's only digital. It doesn't include anything else, no merch, nothing else. That's still incredibly generous as compared to just about any other record label. I, I guess if you're a superstar, you can push that deal, but not a normal artist that's just starting, that's for sure. Yeah, no, no, I agree with that. And I, I mean... You know, we've we've been playing around with a bunch of different models and, and structures to to figure out exactly how our what our deals should look like. But I think at the core of that decision making process is the conversation we have with the artists. And I think, you know, if you're a 19 year old kid now who is just um, coming out into the world or whatever, and you probably have friends who uh, uh, who have become successful on YouTube or Instagram, have become influencers or something like that, and they become influencers entirely on their own. They've become YouTube stars entirely on their own. We're interacting with a generation of future artists that have never relied on anyone to reach stardom. And assuming that we can enter into those conversations and ask them for what, you know, 70, 80% of the royalties, that that just doesn't make sense to that audience. It, it simply doesn't resonate with them. So we have to find alternative ways of working with artists that are beneficial both to the artists and um, to us, but deals that also make sense to these younger and, and emerging stars around the world. And I think that's, that's where we are coming from and that's what we are playing around with. There's no guarantee that this is the format that we will always stick with, but it's been one that we've been um, using since the inception of the company. Now, something I thought was really interesting and forward-looking was something that you call fast-forward. Can you explain what that is? That's right. Yeah, of course. So fast forward is, um, is basically the productification, if that's even a word, Bobby, um, of, uh, of our predictive capabilities that we started building from day one for our label team. Uh, so one of my co-founders, Andreas, um, he worked at Universal Music before he co-founded the company with me. And he was l- basically looking at how to predict the future behaviors of songs. And being at Warner Music, obviously, he had you know, a ton of different songs to be able to look at. And uh, he, he started that work there. And then uh, one of the things that happened when he joined the Amuse team was that we had a super smart uh, data scientist or scientist basically in our midst. And, and we, we took up that challenge of, of how to predict where songs were going. And we started building this tool internally for our label team so that they could create accurate profit and loss statements, et cetera, et cetera, in the kind of early stages of the project. In, in the fall of last year, we decided to build a product around that. So we figured we're already applying predictive methods to the songs we want to sign. What if we were offering this service to all of the tracks on our service? So basically, Fast Forward looks at all of the tracks in our, in our catalog of songs, which is hundreds of thousands by this uh, at this point. And then it starts to analyze the track and see based on the information we have, where the song will be going in, in, in the next six months. So we're using billions and billions of data points to try to analyze that, or to analyze that rather. And then the end result of that is that we offer, you know, uh, eligible uh, users in our base, we offer them a six-month advance built on this predictive modeling. So the way that the advances works 
is we give you six months of your future royalties. We charge you a fee for that. And as soon as the, um, um, the advance plus the, recu- uh, the, the fee has been recouped, you're back to controlling your, your song. But in those months that it takes to recover uh, the money that we advanced you, we're holding on to the track as a, uh, you know, as a guarantee for, for getting our money back. That's pretty fantastic. And I have to say, if I were an artist, I would want to be involved in that in a flash. But I do have a question about this, though. Sure. Isn't it difficult to predict that? And from the standpoint that every country pays, and let's just take Spotify, for instance, every country's user is paying a different rate. And then we look at the different tiers, which are paying out differently as well. And then the fact that Spotify is not so much on a per play basis as a market share basis, that must be incredibly difficult to determine. Because again, you can have a lot of streams, but if they're coming from the wrong place, it doesn't necessarily mean it's generating a lot of money. No, I think you're making a really, really solid point. And this is incredibly complicated and incredibly hard to build. And it took us a long time to get to that point, but we have built it. Um, so what we are using is, uh, is machine learning, uh, basically. Um, so we have um, a bunch of mathematical algorithms that are going through all of the historical information, and it's billions of billions of data points. I remember we sent uh, an estimate in, in spring when we released the new one. We on 30 billion data that we were using to calculate the, the, the masses. I think that number has probably not doubled and tripled. So it's billions of data points that are being used. And machine learning is basically calculating all of those questions that you have. So we have to be way more advanced than that. You can't just look at you know the composition of streams or geographies or, um, or you know, rates per stream goes. We have to go even deeper. We have to analyze which ones of the streams on each individual track are the most reliable and which ones we think can be replicated over the coming six months. So it's, it's a very, very advanced uh, calculation that goes into Password, and that's, that's what makes it so special. Um, and it's something we're incredibly proud of, of course. Um, but I think it, it provides us with a high level of certainty in the fact that we are, um, you know, uh, going to get our money back because obviously we're advancing our own money uh, to the artist. Um, so, um, you know, we feel super confident about it, but I, I want to echo what you just said, that this is remarkably advanced. It's not just looking at a couple of statements and, oh, doing a hundred bucks every month, he's probably doing a hundred next month. It's, it's not that easy. And we're offering this, we're offering fast forward for artists where we only have five weeks worth of data. Wow. Uh, so it, it's a very advanced uh, mathematical and technical solution. Are these artists that are signed to the label? No. So basically, I mean, we hold on to the song, the songs for the duration of the group period. But as soon as we rec- the month that we advance, uh, the fee, the song goes back to the artist 100 they just have to make back the advance and the fee, and then they're back to uh, uh, controlling their rights in perpetuity. And I think that's one of the other things that feels very empowering about fast forward. Um, you know, uh, advances have always been used as a way of locking locking people down, and it's been based on future releases. Uh, this advance we're doing is literally just advancing the money you're already making on your historical catalog, which I think is a much much more exciting prospect. And it doesn't tie anyone down for the coming releases. 
incredibly beneficial from an artist's point of view. And that's, you know, that just um, is in line with the DNA of the company. Ah, yes. If I'm an artist that has uploaded my songs to Amuse and I go and I look in the dashboard, and I haven't done this, so I don't know what the dashboard looks like, which is why I'm asking. Coming back to my previous question where we talked about the various tiers in, in every streaming service and the different rates that are paid per bundle, per, per country, is that represented on the dashboard? Um, not that level of granularity that you just expressed. Um, so we launched the service two years ago. We're continuing to develop it. Um, we're hoping to include a lot more data than we currently have. Um, but right now you can't see how much you made from a family pack tier in uh, Iceland, <laughs> your track. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm sure it's, it's relevant and interesting for some people, um, but that's something we've heard so often from the artists that use the service right now. But that level of granularity can be beneficial for people. So our ambition and aspiration is to include as much raw data as possible into the data feeds that we present our artists with because it's their right to have that data. And if they think that they can, that it can be useful for them, they should have it. Now, considering Article 19 that just passed recently in the EU, how do you deal with covers and, and samples? So we don't deliver covers and samples to download stores. Uh, but we deliver them to streaming services. So we don't deliver um, covers to iTunes. Ah, I see. Okay. You are obviously a threat to the major labels. Yeah, well, I mean, if you start a company like uh, the one we started with the furious pace that we've been running at for the last two years, you you probably have very high set uh, goals. Otherwise, we might have, might have, uh, we, we might have well have, have stayed in bed, you know? So we started this company to, to really challenge the status quo in the industry. We don't believe that there's been so much innovation and change for the last couple of years. And we think that there's a, a really good, good opportunity now to, um, to attack that space. So a lot of the things that we thought were going to happen a couple of years ago when the company was founded are, in fact, starting to happen. Uh, you know, we, we were predicting that uh, do-it-yourself artists were going to have a substantially bigger uh, role in the ecosystem of music. And even though it, it's not necessarily represented on a Billboard Top 100 uh, to this date, it's starting to be represented in, in more national charts around the Europe and around the Nordics in particular, where we are based, uh, where we can already see the grip of the majors on, on the Top 50 and Top 100 charts on Spotify and Apple Music slowly start to loosen. And that was one of the things that we predicted. We predicted that um, technology was going to be important, that it, we're seeing more and more signs of that. We have, we just launched the service in March of 2017, and I think we're the fourth biggest uh, street, um, sorry, distribution service in terms of volumes anywhere in the world. Uh, so we know that our technology and our value proposition is resonating incredibly well with artists around the world. So, so there are a couple of uh, base assumptions that we had back then that are, are, are coming true, whether it's at a fast pace or a a little slower pace, but they're all indicating to us that we're on a good, good path, and and that you know what we thought was going to happen will be happening sometime soon. Well, the fact of the matter is, the major labels have less and less to offer all the time. At one point in time, even when digital started to catch on, 
they could offer the infrastructure for uh, promotion to radio and traditional media. Nobody cares about that anymore. So, you know, forget about that. And then there was distribution to record stores of physical product and nobody cares about that anymore. You could buy that service in a lot of different places. So you look at it and you go, well, I'm going to give a lot away for what? Where I can go to Muse and get roughly the same services. Well, not, not exactly the same services, but the services that I need and make more money. No, I think I think you're making a really, really good point. And it goes back to what I was saying was the mission that Muse was founded on, which was to figure out what the new, what the future of record companies look like. Uh, I don't necessarily, you know, I wouldn't say that we have the full answer yet. But I think that one of the things that is becoming very apparent for us is that it's no longer just a talking point of do-it-yourself artists that they can do it on their own or that they want to do it on their own. It's possible, it's really possible for the first time now to to have a, um, um, a career of your own without the interaction of a major record company. So one example of that is Lil Nas X, who, uh, who has become you know the biggest billboard hit of all time. Lil Nas X had been using Amuse uh, since way back in 2018 and um and we had we we saw when old town road was uploaded somewhere in december even even before he was signed by columbia he was doing you know a couple of million streams per day on his track and none of that was the result of a major record company participating in the in the acceleration of that track um i think lil not x more than anyone else than i can that i can think of is is you know, the standard bearer of, of, of the, this new opportunity. He's a self-made person, an incredibly smart uh, marketer um, who, who really uh, figured out how he could leverage different types of new internet uh, services to really ac- accelerate the interest in his track. And obviously it's a fantastic song as well, so it resonates very, very well with listeners, no matter who they are and where they are. But there is something to be said about what he was able to accomplish before anyone else came into the picture. And that's something that I'm very, very curious to see when it will be repeated again. I'm not saying we're going to have another Lil Nas X on our hands in the coming months, but it's interesting to see that the possibility for this really exists. And it's no longer just a, an empty talking point that people use because they can't get signed by a major. Now, playing the devil's advocate, you can also say that Okay, he was doing very well without a major, and then when he had the backing of of a major, of Columbia, then all of a sudden it shot him to superstar status, which might not have happened before. No, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, the only version of the story that we know is that he generated a lot of fame, then got signed and became ultra famous. Like, could he have reached that on his own? I guess that's the million-dollar question, and that's the question that... (laughs) I have found myself uh, thinking about late nights and whatnot. What would have happened if he hadn't signed? What could he have done independently? Because the song itself is so incredibly contagious and sticky. Um, I think that there is a fairly good case to be made that he could have reached uh, the top of the billboard charts entirely on his own. But we will never find out, I guess. Well, not this time. (laughs) There may be another artist right around the corner that will know. There you go, Bobby. Last question, Diego, and thank you so much for your time today. What is the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way in this venture or maybe somebody imparted to you? I think one of the, uh, one of the 
most one of the best advices that I've that I've ever had was to just continue to stay curious. Uh, curiosity is one of those fantastic aspects of uh, company building of uh, you know when you're developing new services when you are doing all sorts of stuff in your business career and I think uh, that curiosity is something that has been uh, a driving force uh, for me uh, as long as I can remember but I think it's also been one of my the key reasons to why we have been successful we've never um, assume that we know the exact answer. We're curious to find out what it could be. And that leads us to be um, a nimble and, and fast organization when it comes to trying something new. So fast forward, for example, which has been very, very interesting for us to follow in the last couple of months since we launched it. It wasn't really on a 2019 plan that we created in the fall of, uh, of last year. We didn't even know that this was gonna be one of the services we were gonna offer. And I think our constant curiosity and our desire to really figure out this space and, and answer this big question that I mentioned, which is what does the future of record companies look like? I think that's what's really moving us forward all the time and, and keeping us uh, on our toes. So curiosity, um, make sure you have it, <laughs> allow it to, uh, to take you places and, and um, you know, um, encourage it would be my advice. You can find out more about Amuse at amuse.io, A-M-U-S-E dot I-O. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, and now Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts to new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.